We continue in Deuteronomy by God's grace. We started chapter 6 last week. Uh, A conclusion and summary, I think, more to chapter 5, but a bridge to chapter 6. And today we start the exposition and application of the Ten Commandments in great detail. As you'll recall, uh, when we read through the Ten Commandments together earlier in chapter 5, it was really the summary of all of God's law. And after that, part of what is the common common structure of the ancient uh, Near Eastern Peace Treaty. So this being that goes from the general stipulations now to a building and explaining of them of how to live them in, uh, as citizens of God's kingdom. Uh, we transition now to that exposition in great detail of the Ten Commandments. Moses will go in order, and the first one is the first commandment, really summarizing or leading into all four, um, no other gods, God alone. And so now Moses is going to expound that and show us how to apply it in all of life, and it begins with the Shema, the great Shema. Let us hear, as the scripture says in its opening, as it's repeated before and will come again, but particularly we remember the Shema starts with hear. Hear. Hear now the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. While I'll repeat these verses within the sermon, because it's brief and because it's so significant, and as you'll hear, it's the kind of thing that should be repeated regularly, Uh, let me repeat. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. May God bless us to listen in love, and to seek to live this out in love by his grace. Again, we have finished the Ten Commandments in their short summary statements of all of God's law, and now... Uh, we begin the exposition and application of them, of each of the commandments in order. And I'll remind you where we are, and then when we're entering the next of the Ten Commandments, Moses will now explain them and apply them in great detail of how they're to be living them as they go in the Promised Land. They're about to go in. And again, they're explained in order, and first comes first. And the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods. And Moses is going to speak to the heart of the matter in opening up the exposition of the first command with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, excuse me, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Jesus in the Gospels tells us that this is the greatest commandment in the Bible. So we should particularly be loving the Lord, listening well, because this is his greatest concern. This is the biggest focus of how we are to respond to him in our redemption. John D. Curd says, this is the most basic and fundamental truth of biblical religion. 
The Shema is the opening commentary by Moses on the first commandment, and it is the most critical doctrinal statement in all Judaism. Orthodox religious Jews want the Shema to be the last words on their lips before death. Even today, and I'm still quoting uh, Kurid, even today the observant Jew will recite the Shema at least twice daily. In the Masoretic text, that's the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the first and last letters of the verse are enlarged and written in bold type. To underscore the importance and centrality of the message of this verse. And what is the message of these two verses? There is no other God but the Lord to be loved by and to love back. So Christians must love the Lord alone with all their persons. Give that to you again as the main idea of our verses in context. There is no other God but the Lord to be loved by and loved back. So Christians must love the Lord alone with all their persons. And again, it begins with Shema. Hear. So he says to you this morning, Hear, O church. Are you listening? This is a vital message summarizing the Bible and the gospel. Are you listening? Listen to this. The application of this text, the message of this sermon, the one point to take away with, love the Lord alone with all you are. Love the Lord alone with all you are. There is no other God who loves you. There is no other God who loves you because there is no other God, no other deliverer. God has proven he's the only one that loves you as the true God, the only God that could love you as he delivered uh, you, his people and family history from Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods who he proved are no gods. That was the point of the 10 plagues. There is no other God but the Lord God in all the world. They are not God. And so as God, after delivering them from Egypt and through the Red Sea, in the Song of Moses on the other side, as God alone is able to and God alone does separate the waters and deliver them through, part of the Song of Moses of Deliverance is Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, the answer being no one. And not that there are other gods, but the point is, really, there are no other gods. These false gods of these other peoples, they're not gods. God is God alone. He has shown himself to be God alone and only to be their God of worship because he alone saved them. He alone has made them a people by his covenant promises and he delivers on his promises. They have seen this truth shown in the Exodus and now they are being reminded it with the doctrinal point, the reality of this Exodus. 
Verse 4 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is only one God. Now, this is a message that is very much relevant today as it is at any other time of history. There are many other religions teaching many other false gods, and this is still a primary thing to know to be able to witness. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. There are no other gods. God is only God. Look back to chapter 4 with me, verse 39. The point's been made, but it's being really uh, reminded to us in the Shema. But it's something that's come before and will come after. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Know therefore this day and consider it in thine heart. Heart will keep coming up in the verses that follow our text. That the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon earth beneath There is none else. There are no other gods. You can think of the Psalms that talk about these other gods are made of wood and stone. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't actually see. God alone sees and hears and knows. And notice he's God in heaven, and he's God on earth and everything beneath. He's the only true God. There isn't some other God anywhere else. And by the way, when they had false gods in these other religions, they had more than one God, more than one false God. They had gods for different things, as many religions still do today, to try to manipulate, oh, we need rain, oh, we need this. Sometimes that's reflected, I think, even in the Catholic Church with, oh, we'll pray to this saint, we'll pray to that saint who's the saint of this or that. But particularly, they have these many different gods sometimes competing with one another, and they need to try to work them all. God is showing, no, there isn't any other God. You know, you have your one God for things in heaven, one God for things on earth, one God for things of the sea, one God for this and that. And he says, there's only one God. God is unique. He is the only. And I think there's some nuances we'll draw out today that we've not looked at before. We've been to the text a few times in sermons. The literal order of the words, and I think I've shared this with you, is Hear, Israel, Lord our God, Lord one. That's the literal flow of the Hebrew words. Hear, Israel, Lord our God, Lord one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's the one phrase in Hebrew I learned in seminary. But you hear Echad is at at the end. That's the word for one. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, Lord one. And there's discussion about how that is best translated. I think the consideration of the various ways it could be done brings out everything that's there. J.G. McConville says that one could be an adjective or it could be an adverb. It could be that he is one or that he is alone. He is only alone. It's the same idea ultimately, but it brings these different senses to us that are important. Verse 4 is setting up verse 5, that we are to exclusively love God. And verse 4 is, God alone is God. God is unique. He is unity. He is indivisible. And he is reliable completely, unlike these false gods that aren't even gods. One could be alone. It has the idea of consistent. Uh, it's describing his nature, but also the benefit of having him as the only God. Victor Hamilton points this out about the text. I suspect that the concept of monotheism, that is, there's only one God, which is definitely here and significant, but it's not what's particularly driving into the next verse, 
though it's there. He says, I suspect that the concept of monotheism is to be understood not ontologically so much as his essence, but historically and how he proves who he is by what he does as only the only one God and who is one. That is, to continue to quote Victor Hamilton, that is, the emphasis is not with one being of more noble, excuse me, one being or more than one being, excuse me, the emphasis is not with one being uh, one or more than one being, but whether this being acts in a way that is consistent. A God who does one thing in a certain situation one time and does a different thing in that situation another time leaves us with two gods. A God who is inconsistent is historically polytheistic. I think we can consider the warning about a James 1 man being back and forth, back and forth with the waves. God is not like that, is being emphasized. He goes on to say, Moses lifts monotheism and the nature of God beyond arithmetic and numbers and places them into the realm of ethics. A God who is always consistent with himself and with us. And that is true for any generation that chooses to follow him. Now remember, this is the next generation about to go into the promised land. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same as he was before. It's the same law before. Nothing changes about him and his relationship with his church, with whom he is in covenant. P.C. Craigie points out why this is so important. He says, the polytheistic belief, mono is one, monotheistic is there's only one God, and he is one, but the polytheistic belief, more than one God, that belief structure is in, uh, included deities both benevolent and malevolent toward man, good and bad toward man. As a consequence, this tension in man led to a strongly pessimistic element in that religion. If you have all these different gods and they're competing and they're not trustworthy, they're up and down and often they act more like humans, you have no hope, you have no consistency to count on. But Israel may have confidence in God's consistency of love. So significant to what we're getting to next in the next verse. You can love him and always seek to love him more because he loves you consistency, consistently with an everlasting love as the only true God. There are no other gods and he's the only God. He alone is God. He is unique from these false gods. Several things in context can be in view. The simplicity of God. He's complete in himself. He's indivisible. He is uniform in himself. But also, truly, it is indeed being taught here monotheism. There are no other gods in the world. There's no polytheism. There's not many gods. There's only this one true God who has shown him to be their only God by being the only one that heard their cry and answered and delivered them. And they're only his people because he made them his people through the promises to the patriarchs centuries ago. There are no other gods. Now keep this in mind. This is completely anti-culture to the rest of the world at that time. Everybody else basically had many gods. The idea of only one God, just like the Romans would relate to the, to the Christians as only Jesus is Lord, it's countercultural. It's a striking contrast. One God? Well, how do you get everything you need with only one God? Well, 
because he's the only true God, <laughs> and all your many false gods are nothing. They can't do anything, as the psalm again talks about. They have eyes, they can't see, noses, ears, they can't smell or hear. They can't actually do anything. Like Dagon, who couldn't save himself. And uh, actually, I think it was J. Montgomery Boyce gave a pretty powerful illustration. I wasn't going to bring it to the notes, but thinking of Dagon with the Philistines, there was a, um, well, I'm not sure I'm remembering the, quite the right context, but there was an example where this island, I think it was in China, where they were trying to reach people for Christ, there kind of became a competition. Yeah, that, this is the right one. And one of the more impetuous uh, new believers was really challenging these false believers who refused to believe in the true God because their false God brought rain every day on the day that the festival they were having. Every day, no, excuse me, would not bring rain, would not allow it to rain on that particular day, although he pointed out fishermen kind of can plan and tell. And they lost the showdown, actually. Uh, they were, the Christians were really concerned this ought not to be done, but now that it's done, we, they prayed a lot for God to bring rain, and he did. What happened, though, they were bringing out their false god. It seemed like they were carrying it, some kind of big wooden or stone thing. I don't know what it was. And so much rain came, and then they said, okay, well, actually, we got it wrong. This wasn't the day it was supposed to rain. It's actually this day. Oh, okay. That's how it goes a lot, isn't it? And so, again, God sent torrential rains completely when they shouldn't happen. And as they're bringing out that false god, they trip and he falls into the mud. And they, they can't do anything with him. He can't save himself. It's kind of like Dagon, right? And so God is showing that there's no real God other than him. And so he's the only one to know and serve. And, of course, many of them did say, okay, this is the true God because he brought the rain. Now, I'm not suggesting we tempt God, but nonetheless, what a powerful testimony. No other God can do anything for us. God is God alone. He is unique. Paul House writes, These words of the great Shema confess that Yahweh is unique and possesses a unified character. Not only is the only true God, he's nothing like these false gods. He is unified in character. He's reliable in his love and his always being our deliverer. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I, the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praises to graven images. Remember in the recollection of all that has happened, Moses drew their attention to not have idols and false gods. And he reiterated and emphasized when God spoke to you at Mount Sinai, when you got the Ten Commandments that I'm reminding you now, you heard his voice but you did not see him. The false gods are represented by images. Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. There is no one else for you to listen to. But I would remind you what you listen to Uh, in the sermon for Westminster Larger Catechism number 8 years ago on Deuteronomy 5 verse 4. Israel must pay attention to the only true and living God of their fathers. So the sermon shared these main things. You are a people with a rich family history. You are a people because God makes you so. 
God shows he is the only living and true God through you, his people. You must assemble together with your children and listen to him. Hear only the Christian God was the message. Hear only the Christian God. And you might go back to Deuteronomy 5, uh, excuse me, Westminster Larger Catechism number 8. Teaching monotheism, mainly. Christ's prayer for you in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, is this. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, the only mediator. Eternal life is knowing the only true God. Witnessing about this is an incredible part of the gospel, isn't it? It's very countercultural. You only are saved. You only have eternal life if you know the only true God. And Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent, who is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So to reject Jesus, or at least kind of accept Jesus, but accept there are a lot of other ways to heaven too, is to completely be worshiping false gods, many gods, and not have eternal life. The Lord is the only one to worship and live for. The only one deserving of your attention and service. The only one who saved you and sanctifies you. The only one who can hear. The only one who can see. The only one who can love. False gods are not real. A rock, a piece of wood cannot love you, let alone love you back. And that's the point. Verse 4 is especially to set up verse 5. It's the basis of verse 5. It's not just that God proved he is the only God to the world, but he delivered his people out of it. It's personal. He loves them. It's out of love that he does this as the only true God who chooses you, his people, out of the world to be his only people. And he is seeking to be loved back in covenant loyalty. He loves you in covenant loyalty, and he wants you, the greatest thing he wants from you, more than anything, everything else comes out of it, is to love him back. Love only the Lord your God. There is no other God who loves you. Love only the Lord your God. By the way, that includes don't make idols out of other people, or other things, or other substances. And don't make you God. Love only the Lord your God. Think of the illustration of marriage. How often in the Old Testament, husband and wife covenant loyalty with one another is an illustration of God with his people. Same thing in the New Testament. Ephesians 5 really develops this with Jesus and his church as the example for husband and wife. But actually, he's saying, I'm really speaking about Jesus and our relationship with him. But this is an illustration, and it's important and true. Now remember, with the marriage idea as an illustration of God with his people, Old and New Testament, Deuteronomy, again, is a covenant renewal document. You could say it is a renewing of the vows. It's like people who renew their marriage vows. They're... They're reviewing, and they're restating, and they're recommitting to their loyalty to one another in a formal covenant of love. That's what's happening here with the people and with God. 
And so God is reminding them first to love him because this all who they are and where they are and what's happening is because he loves them first. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And Jesus again identifies this as the greatest commandment with the connection of hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, it's this idea of an exclusive nature of a relationship with God because he alone is to be their husband. He alone can be. He alone loves them. He alone has delivered them from love before the foundation of the world. And our response to that needs to be the same. Loyal love because God alone is loyal to them, to us, and their only husband. Love is an attitude, remember, expressed by action. Remember, as we study anthropopathisms uh, about God, God doesn't have emotions. I know that threatens many people today. Those are anthropopathisms. He's not a human. He can't change is why that's so important. He doesn't go up and down, I love you today, I don't love you tomorrow. His love is consistent because he is consistently one and consistently only the one who loves us as the only true God. And so that love is an attitude, a disposition toward us and thus actions come from that attitude. And our response is to be the same. We need to choose him. We need to have an adoration of him, an attitude toward him that is expressed in our actions. And that's why we're told to obey his commandments. That is the loving of God. And that's a lot of what will come in, the, in all of Deuteronomy, but including the first commandment. Love is a choice. Just as God chose you, and praise the Lord, he doesn't go back on his choice. He doesn't change. It's a choice from all eternity. Love is a choice. We are called to respond to God the same, choosing exclusive covenant love of him. Love is relating. He wants us to relate with him. It's not just a matter of doing commands robotically. He wants us to do it out of love. He wants it not to be a clanging symbol and of no benefit to us. He wants us to really love him. Love is the point, beloved, of it all. God is love, the Bible teaches us. And if we're having a real relationship, it is our response to him in love, first and primarily as the only true God worth loving and able to love us at all and receive our love. Love him back. P.C. Craigie writes this, The command to love is central because the whole book is concerned with the renewing of the covenant with God. And although the renewal demanded obedience, that obedience would be possible only when it was a response of love to God. The injunction to love was based on the precedent of God's love. And so we are to love him exclusively. And how should that look? exhaustively. Love him with all your heart, soul, and might. Now, in the Greek, in the Gospels, Jesus adds the word mind. But there's really not such a distinct division of heart and mind as we're inclined to speak, remember. Uh, The word uh, for heart 
and uh, particularly the word for love, lavav, is, really means everything in you, everything within you. And particularly thinking. You, you can't love whom you don't know and understand. We're not animals. It was a response to love's God. The injunction was God's love for us to love him back. And that needs to be exhaustive. Again, heart, soul, mind, strength in the Greek and the New Testament. Uh, mind as well, excuse me, might in the old. Paul House explains that phrase like this. Verse 5 includes the entire range of human essence. You might add existence. We're to love God with the entire range of our human essence. He says, no division of loyalty or segmentation of life or personality will do. Nothing may be held in reserve. No special places we like to hide our idols in our tents. No special places we like to reserve some love and instead hate God because we still want that particular sin. No turning to anything but God to deliver us as our Savior because only he can. Not trusting in something else as if it has the power of God alone. John Currid writes this, The heart to the Hebrews is the very essence of a person. It is one's entire inner being. Soul can literally be translated breath. Thus the idea would be that the Hebrews are to love God with each and every breath that they take. That's loving him completely. Are you thinking of him in every breath? And what a beautiful connection. And this was not my plan. Praise the Lord in Providence. You remember our study Friday night at the Harvest Feast? What was said of Paul, we prayed would be said of us. He was a man whose life could be described by prayer and thanksgiving. And then we were encouraged to, to think about living a life like this. Because prayer has the idea of breathing often. We pray in. Every breath should be praying in prayer. And every exhalation... Ex, uh, Excuse me, I'm getting confused with exaltation. My brain's not clicking here. Every breathing out should be thank you. Every breathing out should be thanksgiving. That's the life we should be lived. And this word soul has the idea of left, uh, breath. So we should just be with every breath loving God everywhere. What a life that would be and how different we'd live our life if we choose to love him like that. He goes on to say, John Curd goes on to say, the Hebrew term for might is a common word that means very. Here it is a superlative. One is to love God with all one's veriness and muchness. God is to be loved with ever so much vigor and force. Now, I know we all express ourselves differently, and therefore we might express our love differently in terms of personality, but there comes a place with anyone you really love and care about where it goes beyond, I love you. It goes beyond a general sense of love and expression of it. It becomes vigorous. It becomes jealous for that Oneness, just as God says he is a jealous God. His name is jealous. He doesn't want us to share our love with anyone else. Uh, false gods, only him. And there's a point where it really does become zealous, right? And zealous love looks like, well, let me ask you this. Think about how you might be listening to the sermon. Let's pretend uh, 
this is, she's not here right now. She's at home. But uh, uh, so, anyways, keep that in mind. She's not here at the moment. But let's pretend Fernanda's standing right over here and she's talking to me, trying to tell me something, expressing her love to me. And uh, she's speaking to me, and this is how I'm listening. Does that look like love to you? Does it look like respect? That's how we respond to God too much. And too often, sometimes people in the worship service, it's like, what are you doing here? It doesn't look like love. As you stare out the window, or sometimes I've seen people recently, and I'm not addressing you at the moment, uh, put their head on their spouse's shoulder and go right to sleep. <laughs> of course, you know that's been issues in the past we've had to deal with, as the Puritans always dealt with it. That's not love. Oh, we might have our difficult nights or difficult illnesses and things that can cause us to be tired. But I'm pretty sure even when that happens, we still show up to love our spouses and vigorously. And frankly, when we go out of our way to love the Lord and show it in how we listen to him. Remember, Mr. Rogers says the greatest essence of love is listening. When we show that to the Lord, just as we do it for our beloved, our family, and people see how much we're struggling even to stay awake, but we continue to show up and to express it in real ways. That's love. I mean, love isn't how you feel. Love controls how you feel, and it controls what you do, which controls how you feel. Love is commitment, consistent commitment, which God gives to us. But that does play out in more and more saying, I will, as Psalm says, I will love the Lord. I will with everything in me. It becomes a passionate will, but it's a volitional thing based on responding to his love. It's an intelligent love. It's one to show in how you respond. J.G. McConville says, the force of the phrase is to require a devotion that is single-minded and complete. The idea of a person's full capacities, and as I've just spoken to, of course, definitely our full attention. Meredith Klein says, in chapter 6, the principle of exclusive devotion to Yahweh is enunciated with the prohibition of allegiance to alien deities. This phrase, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy might or strength, And again, in Greek, uh, they add the word mind because that better captures what the Hebrew says with heart, lavav. In the Greek, it doesn't have quite the same full idea, so the word mind is added. But it is all simply a paraphrastic statement. That idea means walking around. It means instead of saying it with a lot of qualifying words, adjectives, or adverbs, it just says the same thing in different ways. To emphasize the one point, it's not making this psychological division of man. It's saying, love God with everything in you, with all your might. It's not meant to divide uh, the idea of man. It's meant to say, your whole man, in figurative expressions. That is, love God alone with all that is within you, and that'll be seen outside of you. Verse 4 is the truth that is the basis of verse 5. And uh, I hope I'm communicating it clearly enough because it's really impacted me this week to love God more, just appreciate him. There's no other God to love. There's no other God to love you. And it's all in love. 
You're responding to God as one God. He's the only true God. He's your only deliverer. And you respond to him completely with love. No reservation. No holding back for other gods. No waiting to see if some other thing or person is going to meet your needs more than God. No one will. No one can. No one has the power of God. He alone is God. He alone is love. And we're to respond to him because of verse 4 with verse 5. You could say because God is one, uniquely one, uniquely the only one that has shown he loves you and ever can or will, therefore, verse 5, love him back with everything in you. Don't hold back in any area of life. Give it all to him out of love, and love is sacrifice. It is to be exclusive love because he is the only God. Or because he's the only God, your love must be exclusive to him in return. God has delivered only them from Egypt. God has delivered only you from the Lord as only he can. Victor Hamilton says this, From generation to generation, God is not fickle capricious or unpredictable god can be loved enthusiastically because he is lovable and consistent further love for god he says is genuine inevitably entails excuse me love for god if genuine inevitably entails obedience to the word of god one cannot love god with all one's heart and be lukewarm Toward God's word. This is why Luther says the third conversion that needs to happen is the opening of our pocketbook. Give your undivided attention and affection to the Lord. He lovingly speaks to you in his word. Lovingly listen and learn and live. With the heart of 1 John 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. You could say that might be the best application of our text today, although in reverse order. We love him because he first loved us. He alone loves us. Only he can. There's no other God to love us. And no other God will ever love us. So we love him. No one and nothing comes before him, is the idea. You know, remember, this goes back to verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 5. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, does that mean before me in line? As long as I come first, you can have your other gods? Absolutely not. It means no one before my presence. And where is his presence? Everywhere. He's omnipresent. Nowhere, anywhere in the universe should you have any false god. Love him everywhere. Love him everywhere exhaustively, exclusively. May what is said of King... Before I continue that, just just try to think of this other illustration. Let's see, Fernanda, my wife, is with me. 
uh, and we're having dinner, and I'm expressing my love to her and all I've done for her and how glad I am she's my wife. And she's listening, but she can't help but keep laying her eyes on other men in the restaurant. And says, you know, I love you too, but uh, I would like to go home with this man tonight. I know you'll understand because you love me. That is not biblical love. That is not someone really loving God. I'll give you some of my love, and even with a little bit of excitement, but I really want to have these other husbands also. God doesn't say yes to that. In fact, he's constantly saying, absolutely not. I'm your only husband. There is no other husband for you. Love me as my wife completely, exclusively. And you can't do completely what you won't do exclusively. Thus, though, the scriptures often say, my whole heart. May what is said of King Josiah, who did away with wizards and magic and idols, may he, what is said of him be said of you. And like unto him, King Josiah, and like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, our text today particularly. Neither after him arose there any like him who loved God so deeply, so devotedly, so decidedly. This is what he's calling to be said of all of us in our lives and at our death. A sermon was preached for you on Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, that related to the Shema today and included discussing it. And the message there was, love your Lord completely. Love your Lord completely. And here is what was generally taught. God's first four commandments are about exclusively loving him with your whole heart, through your whole being, by fully devoting your whole self to him in all aspects of your life. Lovingly devote your whole week to your Lord. Lovingly devote your whole lifestyle to your Lord. Lovingly devote your whole house to your Lord. Lovingly devote your whole self to your Lord. Love your God completely. Those were the main parts of the sermon. Beloved, may you say, as you sang this morning, more and more decidedly, more and more devotedly. Psalm 18, verse 1. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. May that be your response to this message today. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And thus, Psalm 26, verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. What's that communicating? If you love the Lord and you're going to love him wholly, you will not skip church. You know, I saw, I was listening to, kind of off and on, it's kind of my white noise sometimes, a YouTube video to help me fall asleep, and uh, so I didn't catch most of it, but one thing that struck me toward the end, a very famous, one of the most famous entertainers in our nation's history, started with Christianity, kind of sort of ended with it, um, but he would study all the different religions and participate in them, and uh, he was very spiritual, but by his own, uh, you can hear his voice, and then others who knew him, he didn't go to church regularly. 
And he was looking at all these different idols of false worship. So, of course, he doesn't feel the need to. That's a divided love. That's a divided devotion. In fact, it sounded like he was trying to cover the bases. That's not love of God if we barely show up to meet with God in the special manifestation of his love in worship in his temple. You don't say to someone, I love you a lot, but I just can't stand your house. Can we meet somewhere else? Or, you know, I'll come sometimes. You know, if you love someone, you want to go meet with him. And to meet with him in their own home is the greatest intimacy, the greatest closeness in the sense of love and getting to know one another. If you love God truly, you'll be here all the time. You'll only have sickness keep you back or injury or some uh, providence that causes it. Otherwise, you'll have the heart of uh, Psalm 84 I'll go through Baca. I'll go through the desert. I'll walk uphill both ways in the snow with bare feet to get to worship, to be with my God. I love him that much. Nothing will hold me back. I won't have a divided loyalty and love and skip worship sometimes to go, and as I've heard a pastor say before and I've shared with you, go worship the pigskin. Nothing but my Lord. And I want to be where he meets with his people, whom I also love, that will be coming. Psalm 31, verse 23. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful. Psalm 40, verse 16. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. So we often have said at the beginning of the worship service, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's our purpose in life. Our way of responding in his love is to magnify him and glorify him and acknowledge him. He must increase. I must decrease. And isn't that what true love is for whoever you love the most? Greater love hath no man than this, that he gives his life for them. You die to yourself and you give more attention to Jesus all the time. Isn't that someone we really love? We are more interested in what there is going on in their life. We want to hear more about their life than ours. And it's not just not talking about ourselves. It's asking them about them. And listening and being interested and asking follow-up questions. Because you just can't help yourself because you love that person. And if someone's going to get credit for something you do together, you're more likely, if it's true humility the right way, to want them to get the attention. And no one needs to know that you were involved or behind it. Because you want them to be exalted because you love them so much. This is how we are to live for God. We love him so much. We want all the world to know he's the only God. He's the only one to be worshipped. He's the only one that saves. Jesus, no under name under heaven. If you really love the Lord, you will want to be with him in his house and you will want to magnify him in his house and in your own house and all of life. Psalm 97, verse 10. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. If you really love the Lord with all your heart, you're just going to stop sinning because you can. In Jesus, you can do all things. You're going to do it as long as it takes to get it right and better. You're going to do it because you love God. And it's not about you, it's about him. You're going to do it as soon as you can and as much as you can of your own work with the Holy Spirit because you love him, you will hate evil. You'll hate it out of your love for God. Love is keeping his commands. If you really want to love the Lord exclusively and completely and exhaustively, you'll hate what he hates. And you won't call good what he calls evil. 
And you'll adjust your life accordingly and immediately because real love doesn't wait. Oh, it grows, but it responds immediately. God, help us to love him better. God, help us to love him more. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplication. God heard the voice, of the, the voice of the Israelites calling out for deliverance in Egypt. And they responded in love. They say, we'll do whatever you say because he delivered them. And no one else could or ever would. And no thing would ever deliver. And so we need to say the same thing. God has heard me and delivered me and helped me. So I love him back for loving me to do that. You know, there's an interesting comment on our sermon audio page about last evening's sermon. I only noticed it, I think, yesterday. It was a person from Australia, and she was saying thank you for this important message. And she said uh, a lot of it is so important to hear, and actually more specifically for me to hear. Uh, It's not easy to change. It's not easy to receive difficult uh, discipleship and development from the Lord. But then she said, but thank God. This is what she said. Thank God. And may we all say this. Thank God he loves me enough to give me what I need. She gets it. Here is your greatest motivation and example, ultimately. Remember, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus loved his father and his people perfectly. Jesus Christ is your prime motivation and example of how to love God back. And I would remind you this. What does Jesus say in Revelation to one of the churches who's not obeying and straying away to the idols of this world? You've lost your first love. So God here in the Shema is saying, you've lost your first love. Or you're in danger of it. Your parents lost it. And so they don't get in. Because of their lack of love, they didn't continue to live. Don't lose your first love. We are renewing our covenant commitment together. Get back your first love. And Jesus has some pretty strong words to say if you don't as a church. But him as your example. And God the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. See, love is self-sacrificial, and Jesus shows it perfectly. You should have in view what we've been learning in Philippians as well. He died for you so that you'd believe on him and have everlasting life. And love is the reason that he was sent to suffer and to die. What greater sacrifice of God the Father could he give but to slay his own son, What greater sacrifice of God the Son to lay him down willingly as Isaac and await the knife on the cross? He gave of himself completely. To love you, his church, alone. With arms stretched out on the cross in death, offering his complete, completely committed, completely exhausting love. facing death on the cross and then facing heaven. And in his ascension, he held his arms out, stressed them out over you with eternal life as he ascended back to heaven where he's bringing you because of his love. 
He has given you all of himself and all that he has. You, not everyone else, you shall inherit the whole earth in the heavenly Jerusalem. Out of his perfect love. Thus, beloved, love the Lord alone with all you are. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Love the Lord alone with all you are. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us completely, perfectly, and completely, exhaustively. Thank you for loving us as no one else can, consistently. So may we abide in your love and may we grow in loving you back. Forgive us for not loving you back. But we thank you for having mercy on us. And pray you do help us to love you back more and more. Greater and greater. Deeper and deeper. Wider and wider. Everything within and without. Choosing you first every time. And allowing nothing else to be in your presence that doesn't belong there. Lord, we acknowledge you are the only true God and there is none else. And we thank you for loving us as no one else can. And we love you back, Christ helping us. And we pray as Christ taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.